This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Ladies and gentlemen, Billy Hallowell and Chris Field, the Church Boys. From the sublime to the ridiculous, but mostly ridiculous. I hate these guys. Ladies and gentlemen, I have to warn you before we get started. Uh, Billy Hallowell is incensed. Uh, <laughs> it's the, the topic we're going to address to start the day and maybe even discuss the entire show, I hope I hope not. But who knows? When Who knows where it could lead? Uh, is driving Billy uh, insane, frankly. Uh, he is not thrilled with what he's seeing, uh, politically speaking, with the... Um, uh, are you... Let me ask you this before we get into the topic. Are you annoyed by Trump fans? Yeah, the, I the don't think... I, the Trump, I'm just as annoyed by Trumpkins as I am by the never Trump people. So that's that's what you're that's what Billy is now incensed about. Who, who knows everyone. why? Who knows what little bee got in his bonnet? But Billy is not happy with the never Trump movement. He's going on and on and on and, and on. Any, anytime and on anything and becomes on a hashtag and, and it's not for a good cause, I'm running for the hills. <laughs> hashtag Billy's a lunatic. <laughs> so, so Billy has. Um, Billy has, let's see, what, how did you, how can I put this? Billy's seeing red when it comes to the never Trump movement. Now we've already, <laughs> we've already expressed some of our I, thoughts. Now maybe we start here. Our thoughts on the Trumpkins, right? All the, the Trump people who are in love with the billionaire and just, uh, can't get enough of him and are, uh, there's, there's been some interesting rallies that happen. There's the the loyalty pledge that he makes. Now, listen, the loyalty pledge doesn't bother me, right? Because he's, to me, to me. Now, listen, I'm someone who has talked about about uh, Trump having what we have called uh, fascist impulses, okay? We've talked about that. And I do think that there are some fascist impulses there. Look what he wants to do as far as opening up libel laws and all those sorts of things. Okay. Yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't okay, like I don't that. like that. I think that is. I think there are other things that he's done that point toward fascist impulses. Not that he's a fascist, but he has impulses that are fascistic. Okay. Like like you do. Right. On this well, absolutely. Show. I, you know, general douchebaggery. Okay. That said, the the loyalty oath that he's he's having people raise their hands. And at the at these at these meetings, <laughs> meetings has a certain tone when we talk about this kind of stuff. But at at his campaign rallies, he has had people raising, you know, I, I pledge to vote for Donald Trump, blah blah, you know, and they're raising their hands. And what is unwise about it isn't the loyalty oath because he he's not really it's tongue in cheek. You can hear when he says it that he's smile. There is a smile in his voice when he does this, right? He knows <laughs> smile in his voice. He knows it. He knows that he's he knows it's a that glimmer he's, in his voice. He knows that he's pissing people off royally when he does this. And so it doesn't. It's I see it to me as a joke that he's doing. What isn't good is the fact that he can't understand the optics of it. If you are a Republican, especially. The last thing you want is a whole crowd of people at one of your rallies giving the Nazi salute. And that's what it looks like. They're not giving the Nazi salute. But that's what it looks If you see a still picture of thousands of people doing this, raising their hand, what does it look like? 
It looks like a a, a rally like from the 1930s. Field <laughs> it looks like a, a rally from the 1930s. You know, uh. so you know, I, I'm not a fan of the Trumpkins. Okay, but you, Billy, have some some other deep seated issues about this Never Trump movement. I look. I think. Let me start here. This is the starting point. Everything that people are saying about why they do not want to vote for Trump is legitimate and true and understandable. And look, people should be nervous about some of the things he has said. They should be cautious. There have been a lot of mistruths and lies and, and you know, look. But, I mean, if lying is our standard, then nobody can be president because they all lie. All they do is lie. Every single person up on those debate stages has lied. Right. Uh, and there's our Diet Coke, our first Diet Coke. Uh, they should become a sponsor, Diet Coke, of this show. Anyway, you can't see Chris, but he's doing a cheesy like uh, I don't even know how to describe it. I'm posing um, for an ad. You're supposed, anyway. to, you're supposed to you're supposed to take a picture of this while we're doing our show. Oh, all right. Well, let me let me hold on. I'm going to do that. This. I'm going to take a picture of it. Hold it up. Hold it okay, up. Hold your Diet Coke up, and just wait. Just wait. It's coming. It's coming. There it is. We got it. All right. All right. Anyway, um, oh, <laughs> that noise is my. My Slack. Michael Pelko sending something out to the staff. God knows what it is. Oh. I'm not even going to open it. Yeah. Anyway, the, I think that everything people are saying about Trump is true. The problem is that there's this outrage, this never Trump outrage, and it stops there. It's yeah. we yeah. can't vote for him. We'll never vote for him. He's so awful. Right. And by the way, I say this as somebody, if the election were held today and it were Trump and, and Clinton, I probably would not vote. Right. But so having said that, I'm sort of being a hypocrite here, but, but I want to break it down. It stops at never Trump. But what people right. don't realize is that never Trump, it will mean, I don't care if you have a third party candidate, I don't care, I don't care what happens. Every never Trump person is further ensuring that it will be forever Clinton and yeah. always Clinton not and Clinton for not, eight more years. Not ensuring, but uh, well, making but it more making ensure. it making it more likely. Making it more much, likely. Much more likely okay. likely. Much more likely collectively. Yeah. Look, if there's a third party can I'm sorry, America, if Ted Cruz suddenly becomes this this third party candidate which i doubt that would happen but let's no, say there's a third party candidate they're never going to take the trumpkins away from trump it will right. never be enough it will be a split party and yeah. hillary will be president right. and so what i want to say to those who and this is just a question for those of you who are saying you know oh i don't want you know trump on my conscience i can't cast a vote for him i'll never vote for him never trump never trump never right. trump uh are you okay with placing the nation into 16 years of moral decay, which I think <laughs> most Christians view the last eight years as, as having some sort of moral decay, disagreeing with what Obama has done? Are you prepared to hand that over to Clinton for another eight years? And this is just a question for those who feel that way. Right. Another eight years, 16 years that you will not be able to turn back from just because you can't bring yourself to vote. For uh -huh. Trump. Now, it, the answer may be yes, and that's fine. But right. I think people need to think about that. That's right. what I'm annoyed about. Nobody's thinking right. about the, this. The lack of the lack of the lack of thinking behind it. I th I can understand that being your your argument. That's be what's annoying me. You know, because just as the Trumpkins are frequently criticized as as a lack of thinking, I think that it's fair to say that there are a lot of people. Not every, certainly not everybody in the tr not all the Trumpkins, and not everybody in the Never Trump movement right. is just simply. Right offering that blanket statement as a um are is someone having work done at their house yes you hear it yeah, we're having uh we're having crowd molding put in oh really <laughs> is andrea behind it's, this is this it's andrea's percent version of it is this is this andrea is this andrea's project 
So, so now this one's my project, believe it or not. So <laughs> the project you hired out <laughs> because you don't even have a hammer in your home. Oh no, no, no! I don't do I don't do the kind of cuts you need to do for for this. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, uh, but sorry. But, yeah, but that's the issue. What you just highlighted right, is right. the issue. I think it's the lack of thought about what that means. And and everyone will say, I know some of you are scoffing, well, I am thinking about this. Are right. you really thinking about because that will be on your conscience then? Right. No, and that and, will be on your right. conscience. So but you gotta be able to hash that out. So the question becomes, okay, so if the election were held today and it's Trump versus Hillary, the never Trump movement needs to elaborate why they would say never Trump. And I think part of the argument that they would make, and listen, it, I'm on the same boat as you, except that I'm a little more extreme probably, is I have, in my heart, I'm never Trump, and I, I have no intention, I don't think I can ever, I'm, I know that I can't be convinced to vote for Trump. Um, so you're basically voting for Clinton, though, you realize no, this. No, 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 it's like half a vote. If I don't But it's vo- half a vote for Clinton. Right, but if I, if I don't vote, that doesn't give her more votes. To, it just keeps a vote from happening for Trump. It's not a vote for Clinton. A vote for Clinton is an actual vote for Clinton. A non-vote is a vote non- that helps. It's still a non-vote that helps Clinton. Right. The non the non-vote. Well, it doesn't. It helps neither of them because if I were to if I were a you know a Hillary person saying that I'm not voting for Hillary helps Trump. It's I'm simply not voting. It's not a vote for Trump. It's not a vote for Hillary. It's a non-vote. Uh, uh, that because that preassume that assumes that I would be voting for Trump, but then I just don't vote for Trump. No, I was never intending to. Uh, anyway, which we're, I we're, I think. Let me just. I think it's fine. Like I said, if the if this were happening today, I would not. I would be in the same boat as you are. Right. But I I have a problem with, and I guess I have a problem with you. Say I would never do this. There's no way I'm ever going to do this. Now that's hypocritical because I've said right. there are certain people I would never vote for. Right. Um. You know. But but I think. I guess for me the issue is, and I may not vote. I, I may not, but but I think the issue is that the level of intensity of the Never Trump stuff holds the power to ensure a Clinton victory collectively. Yeah, and that's and that's possible. So the, the so then the argument becomes, is that a bad thing? Right, is, and is, that's a legitimate is, argument. Is to Hillary have. winning a bad thing? Right, if it's between Trump and Hillary, is it a bad thing for Hillary to win that? election because because what are the problems you have with hillary um well i mean i'm now i'm speaking more generally about this right because as somebody who has said i would have a hard time i cannot vote for a candidate who cannot tell me and you can call it a one-issue voter i don't care that a baby past six months right should not be aborted unless right. there's some dire circumstance, right. you know, with that baby or whatever. Right. I, I'll even give that exemption. If now she kind of has said that, but not not clearly. Right. It's not on her campaign website. No. And the same for Bernie Sanders, who actually doesn't want any exam. Who doesn't really who, who wants it up to birth? He doesn't care. Mm-hmm. I cannot. I don't care if you're a Republican. I don't care if you're a Democrat. I will not do that. So that's the the only issue I'll throw out there, and that's right. one that prevents me from doing it. It is right. disgusting. It is terrible. Um, and I think, you know, there you go. Right. So, and I'm, and I'm that, a rabid, that, I'm a rabid pro-lifer and I can never vote for someone who is pro-choice. In fact, part of my, listen, I don't always vote for Republicans, but I don't know that I ha- can say I have ever voted for a Democrat. And it's not because I haven't had, fr- I've had friends who are Democrats who run for office and I don't support them because I can't, I haven't been able to convince myself to pull the lever for someone who's a member of a party that's a pro-abortion party. 
Be, and because even though I've got pro-life Democrat friends, in fact, I had this discussion with a conservative and Republican friend of mine back when I lived in Virginia, and we were talking about the mayor of our little town and who was a Democrat. And he said, you know, I vote for him because, you know, I think he does good for the town. And so I, said, I said, I can understand that. I agree. And I don't dislike the mayor. I think he's doing a great job. It's just a small little town in northern Virginia. But he's a Democrat. And I said, you know, I haven't I, I didn't vote for him. I didn't. And I told and I told my friend why. And here and here's why. Let me give you the example of why. And it convinced my friend that, you know what, I understand that. And that's probably where I need to be, too. And my reasoning was because when we had little community parades, he brought in a fellow Democrat who was the congressional, and if I told you the name, you'd know the name, who was the congressional representative for our, you know, our congressional district, helping, and this guy won just barely. This guy didn't win by a whole lot. And his continued support, this local Democratic mayor, who we loved and did a great job, was helping this other Democrat who is an evil liberal Democrat who supports Nancy Pelosi and is a pro-choicer, helping him get elected. I said, I can't support this mayor for that reason, right? If he's going to help get elected, someone who's a pro-choicer, I, that's not somewhere I can, you know, where I can stand. So anyway, but I think that the, the, the pro-life thing, I think to me, that's, if there's one litmus test issue I have, that would be it. If I, if I could only pick one. Um, so that's, that speaks against, that's why, that's why I couldn't vote for Hillary. I think I think that this is how I would if I were a pro Trump person and everyone's going to think I am after this. I'm not. Right. The case that I would make would be this. OK. Um, beyond all the rhetoric and all the things that are very damaging. And look, there are things that are really, I think, awful that have been said and done during the right. campaign oh, on yeah. behalf of Trump. But moving all that aside, thinking about what the next four years looks like, right. you have a you know what's going to happen if, if Hillary goes in. The, all of these issues we're talking about, abortion, every issue, it is going to continue. She has said Obama has done wonderful work. She is going to continue it. You are well aware of what she is going to do and continue to do and represent in the White House for four to eight years. Yes. By the way, also granting her family an imperial presidency, essentially, for, <laughs> right. you know, let's just yeah. talk about that, right. too. I don't right. think the Bushes right. or the Clintons should have been back in the White House. Yeah. That's a separate issue, though. Yeah. Now, with Trump, you may get the same thing. Right. You may get awful cultural, whatever, but you have a much stronger chance of right. not getting those things. You have right. a much stronger chance of having people brought in who do reflect the values that conservatives care about. And that would be the case I would be making if I were a pro, if I were a pro Trump if, person. If I were a Trump person, the case I'd be making is listen, you, and, and one case I've made, I've heard other people make, and I, and I agree with it to a point is that the devil, you know, is better than the devil you don't know. True. Right. And True. so I, and so with Hillary, at least we know what we're getting though. I wouldn't vote for her. At least we'd know what we were getting with her. But the argument, the other side of that argument is for the Trump people to say, yeah, with Hillary, you know you're going to get pro-choice legislation. With Hillary, you know you're going to get a liberal whack job progressive on the Supreme Court because re there is a Supreme Court vacancy that's going to be filled either by President Obama or by a President Trump or a President Hillary. And that should be the biggest issue, by and the that way. Should be the number one, that that's the number one thing that the Trump people should be pushing now. Are you do, are you going to I hand that to Hillary? Right. Do I trust Donald Trump to make a good Supreme Court nom nomination? Mm, not really. Do I trust Hillary to make a good Supreme Court nomination? Absolutely not. So, so there's, you have a better chance with Trump again. 
that's the argument that the pro that the Trumpkins need to be need but, to be but making. Let me just ask now, you right now. now let, go ahead. I'm going to ask go you. Yeah. Do you have? I want you to answer what right. you think. Is there a better chance, statistically speaking, based on well, we can't really go statistic, but like right. based on what we know so far, is there a better chance of having a more palatable um, Supreme Court nominee under Trump or Clinton? Trump. So, is there a better chance of having ve- better? You know, if you if you're somebody who cares about good values, is there a better chance under let me, Trump let me or say, Hillary? I, let me let me say, let me say this. Let me say this. That's a challenging I, one, actually. <laughs> so, the answer to your first question is about the Trump nominee. I think we are more likely to get a good. I think we are less likely to get a horrible nominee from Trump than we are from Hillary. Okay, that doesn't mean confirmed. That just means nominated. I think that Trump. I think that Hillary. We are guaranteed we're going to get a liberal progressive nut. Okay, we're we're going to get Ruth Bader Ginsburg nominee nominee from Hillary. From Trump, we might get Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We might get John Roberts. For conservatives, not horribly comforting either of those. Okay, but one is still better than the other. Yeah, right. In terms of conservative worldview. Sure. Now that said, one of my concerns about Trump has been his, as I've said before, his fascistic impulses. He has fascist impulses. Not that he's a fascist, but there are impulses there. His wanting to loosen up libel laws and all these other these other things that we have right that he has rightfully been criticized for. When he becomes, if he becomes president, he will have most likely a Republican majority for the fir- for at least the first two years. A Republican majority that doesn't stand up to a Republican president that's doing non-conservative things. They will, though, reflexively stand up against Hillary. They will say, heck no, you're not getting that judge, or heck no, you're not getting that legislation. But if Trump offers someone or something similar or identical to Hillary, he's more likely to get it. Does that make sense? If 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 Hillary's going to nominate a a Ruth Gator, Bader Ginsburg and Trump's going to nominate a let's say an Elena Kagan, okay? The Republicans the Republican majority will stand up to Hillary and say no, I'm hoping on the uh Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but they won't say no to an Elena Kagan from Trump is my is my belief. And the same with other bad legislation that he wants to put through. And if he's going to do things via executive order, if both of them are going to do things through executive order, the Republicans will stand up and fight Hillary's executive orders because they hate Hillary. But because Trump is a, quote, Republican president, I don't think that they'll stand up and try to find ways to fight it. And the fact is, once it finally goes through the Supreme Court, gets decided, it'll be too late. Uh, they might fight it. They might not. I don't know. The Republicans have been completely ineffective, as we've yeah, seen. That's so. true. They, they're not who fighting knows? other things either. So. Who knows? Yeah. Right. Who knows? And and I think, you know, for me, this entire thing is disheartening. And look, I, I do want to say, I think it's appropriate right now to be fighting for another candidate if you believe in another candidate. Sure. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. I, I don't want to come across as saying, oh, you shouldn't fight for Cruz. You shouldn't fight for somebody else. My point is that I think it's going to be Trump and Hillary. And, yeah. and when that yeah. happens... The never Trump people, what are they going to do? Right. Because it's great that you're standing on a soapbox and you're standing by what you believe. I think that's great. I think you're right about your points. But the reality is somebody is going to be president. Right. One of them is going to be president. And so you need to. 
Right. And you need to snap out of the whole, this whole, you know, world of, oh, I'm going to, dandelions and, and unicorns and, you know, <laughs> no, someone's going to be president and you need to figure out who it's going to be. If you think Hillary's better and you make that case, go for it. If you right. think Trump is better and you make that case, go for it. But saying, you know, never Trump, never Trump, I'm not going to, I'm going to write in my dog owner or my dog walker or whatever. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, you, you got to. But you also, you also, you also, yeah. And you got to say, which is, do you vote for the less bad? I, I don't know that that's, you, often we find ourselves voting for the less bad. When it was John McCain versus Barack Obama, many of us held our nose and voted for John McCain because, not because we thought he was a conservative, but because we thought he was way less bad than Barack Obama, to be perfectly frank. And many people did the same thing with, with Mitt Romney. But I think people are tired of doing that, saying, I'm not going to vote for the less bad guy anymore. Right. And 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 that's, I think that, that you have to. Though. And that and that argument is made. That's the argument to make during primaries. Right. But if you don't I meet, agree. But if you don't, if you say I'm not voting for the less bad guy anymore and you're going to make that argument during the primaries, if you don't stick to it in the general election, it was an empty threat to begin with in the primaries. And the fact. No, that, it, no, no, no. I and the fact is, you. And the fact is the GOP knows that they knows that they know. You know what? These people who are never Trump, not all of them. But these people who are never Trump, they have never vote for Trump, never vote for Trump, are only never Trump in the primary. Because when it comes push okay. comes to shove and we have to put them up against Hillary, they're gonna they're gonna go, I can't take Hillary. And the and the fact is, I understand that feeling because I, there are days that I go, I guess I guess I gotta would have to support Trump because I don't want Hillary. There are days that I feel that way. But uh, well, me too. And I right now I would not vote. Like I said, if they, right. I'm the hypocrite here because I'm complaining and going on and on and on. But right now, this isn't the general. And right. so I don't I don't have to commit right yeah, now. I and I don't have to say who I'd vote. And I may never vote for either of them. Right. But but the, the point that I have is people need to know what they're going to do when that time comes. I know it feels really good to use a hashtag and put it out on social right. media. And, oh, you know, never Trump, never. Trump. You, well, when that when this is all said and done and right. August comes. Right. And you have to make a you have to start thinking about your decision. You got to think about that. And if you right. choose Hillary, that's fine. And you have right. a rationale for it. That's great. Right. If you choose Trump, that's great. But right. I'm annoyed by the people who, right now, are indicating that they are going to just what, not do anything. Right. And and I, I'm okay with not voting for either. But I I think you're more. And I don't think that. I mean, you're probably annoyed with me on a whole lot of things, maybe even including this. But the never Trump folks who are thoughtfully right now, like you're right now, are are I wouldn't vote for either. But you, you're thoughtfully in that spot. I think right. that our frustration, our annoyance comes with the, just like the Trumpkins, the never Trumpkins, who are just unthinkingly never Trump, never Trump, harumph, harumph, harumph. Yes. And those yes. people who are the unthinking never Trumps, harumph, 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 are the ones most likely, frankly, to change their minds when the general election comes out because they'll be more anti-Hillary. They'll be more never Hillary than never Trump. No, and, and look, I... I do think a lot of we're, we're already so divided. A lot of what Trump is dredging up is even more divisive. It's like the it's like really bad timing, right? You think about all the race issues we've had, yeah. and and then Trump comes in and, and he sort of drudges up all of these things, and you know it's like oh gosh, here we go. You have these these awful things happening at campaign events. You have chaos. It's there are a lot of things to be concerned about. So the, I, I agree with you. If you're thoughtfully considering these things, great. Right. Um, if you're not on either side, it's sort of annoying. Yeah. I just I find it irritating. Yeah, yeah I get it. Oh, it's I, I understand, and I kind of this is kind of how I feel right now. Poor. 
Poor Rubio. That's the new that's the new GOP theme song, by the way. <laughs> Poor Rubio. He's like got to find a job now. I know. Well, you know, and we put out a story on the Blaze the other day and a whole bunch of places were were playing this up as though it's some sort of new revelation. And Rubio said Rubio says, "I'm not running for Senate. I'm not running for re-election to Senate. I don't want to be vice president." He said all along he didn't he wasn't interested in being vice president because and that was a campaign thing. It's like if I offer that caveat then it means that I'm willing to settle for not being president, okay? That maybe that's news. But they're treating as breaking news this idea that he says, uh, I'm not running for re-election to the Senate. It's like, but he said that from the very beginning. He said he wasn't, even if he loses the nom- loses right. the fight for the nomination, he's not running for re-election. He has said that from the get-go. I mean, it's like, I, uh, anyway. Well, I think yeah, I like I, I like Rubio, and I wish he were gonna he were gonna stay in the Senate. But it is strange that you have to. Um, it is strange that certain states don't allow you to be to to run for both, right? To no. run for president and, and also run. It, I it's heard, a little. I get I get it, but I know I heard it said. I heard it said that you can't in in Florida that that's the law that you can't run for both. I'm not sure that's the case, but even if it were, the fact that he's now not running for president would allow him to run for re-election, I think. Right. But I wonder he, if he's just he exhausted. Said, but he said from the very beginning, I am not going to run for re-election to Senate. I'm going to focus on running for president. And that was, and he has stuck to that, and that's an honorable thing. He's also said he's not going to run for governor, which I wish he would do. Because I like, talk about something that would speak well of him in four to eight years is being governor of Florida for a term or two. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's I think- huge. I, I can't figure out why he didn't resonate. I think I that either. honestly, it's insane to me. He would have won. He would have won the election. I, I just yeah, I, I can't figure I, it out. That, I haven't been able to figure that out. You and I were talking about this yesterday. Why did Cruz stick, but Rubio didn't? I mean, what? How? How is it possible that? Listen, the guy that as as much as I love Ted Cruz, and he's quote my guy, and has been from the be- I guess from the beginning. And I like his politics, and I like his politics for me personally. I like his politics the, the most of all the guys who are running. But Rubio certainly had more of that attractive candidate, Phil. He's got the look. He's got the demeanor. He's got all these. I think I don't. I don't understand why Rubio didn't stick. How is it possible that Cruz beat Rubio? That I don't understand. I don't know, yeah. but I apparently agree with eighty-eight. I took a poll, and it liked it, that it would tell me which candidates I agree with. In your case, I public. like. 88% Rubio. Oh, really? Um, which is fascinating. Uh, Ted Cruz, I don't really trust these polls, but I was pretty far from Ted Cruz, which was strange. Not too far, but farther than Rubio. Um, not really near Kasich, which was odd. Um, yeah, that is weird. I, not to, be, to slam you in any way. No, go for it. Go slam me. I have plenty of other things to ridicule you for. But if I were to guess, I would guess, you know, Billy probably lines up the most if you were to take a poll, probably lines up the most with Kasich. Would would might would have yeah, been my maybe, guess. I don't know. I, well, you know, because I, 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 there, lo- I understand the the I I really do. There is a part of me that understands the things that people like about Kasich. I do think he has at least come across as a quote godly man for a long time. He's been doing those. It's you know it's part of why Jim in, Jim Inhofe, you know, Mister anti-climate change hysteria. You know, he is like the number one government skeptic of the climate change movement, the global warming nuts. You know, he doesn't like any of those people. I love Jim Inhofe. He came out and endorsed uh, Kasich. 
And it goes back to the fact these two guys have been friends for a long time. They were friends in Congress. They had a weekly Bible study together. I mean, the guy knows, you know, he knows uh, Kasich forward and backward and trusts the guy and loves him. So it's like, and Kasich's the one guy who's who buys into the global warming stuff. It's really interesting. Yeah, Kasich's interesting. He also didn't really want to didn't really want to protect religious freedom uh, protections for businesses, and then yeah. changed his mind in that in yeah, one of the last debates, which right. made me laugh because I was like, uh, you were pretty clear that you did not think that businesses should be. Yeah, look, this debate about well, we don't. We've we've had a million discussions about this debate, but everyone knows there's a big difference between refusing service at a diner of a yeah. gay couple and not wanting to provide a service to a wedding, a gay right. wedding. I, I right. don't understand why people are confused between the difference right. there. You could disagree with both, but right. there's a big difference. Well, at there, least there's a my, huge, there's a huge difference. You can disagree with both, but at the same time, you can also agree with both being the that ought to be the right of the person who runs the establishment. If you want to deny service to anybody for any reason, to me, that ought to be allowed. But that's me being a hater. But if somebody wants to deny service to me for being a Christian, okay. I will not. I will, I will let the world know that you will not serve Christians. And that's fine. I, you, don't need to, you, don't, you don't have my business. That's okay. But um, yeah. <laughs> what I don't understand, though, is why Kasich is still in. Have you figured that out? at all i think he really thinks he can win i think he, he really can't. thinks there could be a do you, you at, think a, he, at the convention oh the broken convention could, yeah oh maybe i just don't think i just don't see it happening i don't it I, seems like trump's gonna have enough delegates right well, i mean I, at I some don't know. point that's, that's still up that's still up in the air as far as having enough delegates but if you're even one short it's within the rules to have a contested brokered convention you might not like it but it's within the rules can you imagine if mitt romney ends up being the candidate after oh. all this oh there would be a civil war within the. Uh, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. It very yeah. well may be that the Republicans start fighting each other, and Hillary just yeah. laughs all the way into the Oval Office. I mean, there's a good <laughs> chance that that's what's going to happen. <laughs> the cackle. She's going to not laugh, but she'll cackle all the way into the. She Oval might bark Office. into the Oval Office. Oh, I love that. I love that, buddy. Did you watch that that Trump commercial of her barking? Yes, yes I did. I it was that. very I fun. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant. Hey, um, so. Do you want to take a break? We'll come back and we'll get into this interview you had and then we'll do a final yeah, segment. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's. Oh, and you know, when we come back, let's before we introduce the the interview you want to do, you had a thing with Franklin Graham, right? Wasn't it? Uh ye- We'll do that. Wait. Um right? Yes, well actually Graham? it was about what we're talking about here. It was right. about Trump. Well, let's Okay, let's let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll do the Franklin Graham thing and then we'll get into the interview, okay? All right. But if only only if I can figure out how to run my soundboard over here. Never it's... Trump. <laughs> okay. Well, that's quiet. That's that was terrible. Well, let me let me fix that. Let me do that again because for some reason that was super quiet. Let's try again. Uh, here we go. Back to the church boys. <laughs> <laughs> Billy and I are. We were going to get into this other thing, and we will. But um, but <laughs> Billy and I are talking about children because my children are home today. My youngest son is usually in afternoon preschool, but they've got canceled today because school's out at like twelve today. So my daughter, my oldest daughter, who's in grade school, will be home soon. But he's having little friends over for lunch. We were talking about kids and raising kids and how weird they are and strategy for dealing with them and strong-willed children and. <laughs> I've got oh yeah I've got three children all of whom are strong-willed but uh, the girls are more what's weird is the usually boys are more strong-willed you don't have any boys but 
they can be more strong-willed. My girls are, and they are, they are good kids. They are not bad kids, and they're not. And they're not. They're strong-willed only in that that's just kind of their nature. But they're good kids still. I mean, we don't we don't have really obedience issues and that sort of thing. But you were talking to me about some strong-willed. Oh issues. gosh. What what what's what's because our three-year-old has always <laughs> been strong-willed. Right. Always. She was like the perfect baby. Never missed. Right. Like always. She was like never cried. Like was always. And when she hit two, she got a little nutty, and <laughs> you know so. We now she's three, three and a half, and um, she is tough. And we are like not the kind of parents who don't lay down rules, who don't. I mean, look, they can only understand so much at that age, right? right so you right. you lay down the rules you need to lay down. You try to teach them. She is the kind of kid. If you were to raise your voice, she would raise her voice back. No, you like, know, like and me, it's I want, insane. I want, to, I want to make sure I got this right. Uh, are you, is your wife Italian? <laughs> yep, hundred percent. Are you are you Italian? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm like seventy five percent. Okay. Ding, now, ding, now, ding. now wait a second. You say that she starts yelling at you if you yell at her, kind of thing. If you were to say like, if you were to raise your voice and say, "We don't do," you know, "We don't do that," and yeah. like try to like, okay. she would raise her voice back. <laughs> there would be no. Um, I mean, the other day I told I was. She just is so sassy like that's and and it was not taught to her she doesn't see it because we're ultra we're ultra careful about what we are doing and how we're saying it right and it's funny so we've adopted this new crazy person strategy we call it where (laughs) when she is saying something she shouldn't be saying or like saying it in a tone ava we don't talk that way like crazy person you know like high in the clouds if i heard you saying it in the store i would want to turn and punch you Right, exactly. And we've just started doing this, and it's insane. She'll be like, I'm sorry, Daddy. Like, immediately de-escalates. Wow. Um, and it's just interesting, because that is, as far as I know, that's one of the strategies for dealing with strong-willed kids. Not that you never raise your voice, or that you never, I mean, not that you want to be yelling or killed, but not that there are times it's appropriate to raise right. your voice, right, a little bit, or a different tone, right? right. Um, but that you adopt a very different way of sort of tackling it. And, and so far, it's been interesting. It hmm. seems to pay off a little bit right. and we were talking about you know sometimes kids have a rough day or a rough week you know and you know i know ava has had hers and my kids have had their their rough weeks and again i don't you know i don't know the extent of rough weeks with ava what exactly that's like but for us it's not a matter of them being bad kids it's they had a they had a, a bad week or a bad day it's and it's amazing how we as parents get on our kids case when they're having a bad day and you do have to keep them in line. You have to teach them, especially as a Christian parent, you got to teach them that's not an okay to way, re, way to react. You have to react the right way. And you need to react right. the right way all the time. However, we get on their case as though we never have bad days. That doesn't excuse anybody else's bad behavior. The fact that I have a bad day doesn't mean that I can excuse your bad behavior, Billy, if you were to have a bad day and behave poorly, right? I, I can't. Right. Ex- my bad behavior or my bad days doesn't excuse your bad behavior or vice versa. That said, why is it we suddenly think that our children should never have bad days? That doesn't mean they, again, they have to still react the right way and be trained to react the right way. But the fact is kids, and just like adults, kids have bad days or bad weeks. And I have to remember that, especially when I'm dealing with, you know, an eight-year-old girl, who's my oldest, you know, she's in whatever grade, third grade. And when she comes yeah, well, home, they come she's, home she's after a, a long day. Right, and she comes know? home from school. She's been in school for, what, eight hours, however long they're at school. And she's got homework and, you know, maybe her friends weren't the nicest to her during the day or whatever. And she's in a bad mood and you're just like, burr, 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 get out of your bad mood. Hurrumph, hurrumph, hurrumph. But it's like, dude, if you had gone through at work what she went through at school, 
you'd be in a bad mood too. You know, right. it's like, come on. They no, it's a good they point. Don't, you know, they don't stop we, being humans just because they wear small clothes. And we, and we, you know, we have her in a full day um, school. She's in an actual school. It's a pre-K to eight school. Um, so right. she's there all day right. and she's three. I mean, she's in a three-year-old program. And so I think that's a lot for a three-year-old, you know, yeah. and they do age appropriate things with them, sure. obviously, but it's school. I mean, she's learning. Right. She's, right. we have parent teacher conferences. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a school yeah. and, um, it's a great place for her. It's been good, good in a lot of ways, but I think it's tiring. They come home, yeah. they're tired, and you forget that. It's like, oh, gosh, why is Ava in a bad mood tonight? Well, right. she's exhausted. She's right. been up since 530, right. 6 o'clock, and right. she's been in school all day. Absol so um, it is interesting. I think I think parenting is not easy, but it's rewarding. And there right. are times it's easy, but it, overall, it's challenging. I right. mean, and just like, you're responsible. And and we all, else. and the funny thing is, you know, we'll, th we'll think, well, how am I going to diffuse this today? How am I going to treat my kid and treat him now? And, and, you know, she's had a bad day. It's like, just like kids need a routine, adults need a routine. And you need to set up, not you, I'm speaking, but adults need to, excuse me, set up a routine for when my kids get home, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to work from home. So when my kids get home, I take a couple minutes and stop what I'm doing and say, come on in here, come on in the office. And they'll come tell me about how their day was. We give hugs. We do lots of hugging. We we focus on the good things that happened, you know, and and if they want to share the, the tough stuff, we'll get into that eventually, you know, in the throughout the evening. But the routine is you come and say hi to daddy. We have we we have dinner together. We have bedtime. We we do all those things. And I, we don't do bedtime every once in a while with where we read books and say prayers and sing songs on days that I think that they're having a bad day and that will help them get to sleep better. It's, no, we do that every day. They can rely on that kind of thing. They know when they come home, this is a place where we're going to be positive. And that's why you set up the routine ahead of time so that when they are in a bad mood or you are in a bad mood or both, you still follow the routine because it, it helps yep. everybody function the way that they're supposed to function. It's, when we, yeah, routines are important. That is something we learned quickly yeah. and even if we alter the routine that can be problematic like yep. if you have to alter it let's yeah. say something's going on yeah. um you know i do bedtime i put i put her i put ava to bed and so she expects that you know right. when that can't happen it's it doesn't always throw her off but she's asking why you right. know which is good you want to have those patterns yeah. right right um and you know i think we do certain things in the morning. We read in the car when we get to school. We read from her prayer, a prayer book for kids. Right. We, right. you know, we pray. She'll, and she'll say, if, if let's say you're like rushing and every once in a while you'll forget to right. do something, like take the book out or pray. She'll say, oh, we have to pray to God. You know, right. Right. They, That's good. they remember those things. So right. I think, you know, now she's got a fierce personality. She, I think she's always going to. Yeah. I can see yeah, it yeah. in her, you know, yeah. which actually, you know, you parent the right way. You end up with. A successful kid, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You parent the wrong right. way and you're screwed. I yeah, mean, that's I that's totally the whole agree. thing with a strong-willed kid. Yeah. Um, so, with it, any kid, with any kid, but yeah, a strong-willed kid especially. And it's funny. It's, I mean, different. It's amazing how different kids are. And I remember, I recognize when I was a kid, I recognized this amongst me and my my two younger sisters. I, I could see the differences, but at the same time, I'm like, it's not that big a deal. But once you have kids, you realize how different they are from each other. Even even you, I'm sure, realize when you brought your second one home, just a baby, you started already, you started to recognize already, she is so much different from the first one. Oh, totally. Just, I mean, Ar and already, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. and it's funny, the the different roles that, you know, firstborn and middle children, you know, the babies always have. My kids so fit the, 
especially the the two girls so fit the oldest and youngest roles because izzy is the oldest she is the boss she is in charge she's strong-willed she's number one child this is how we do things and lucy the baby who's two is like (laughs) (laughs) yes i'm gonna play with this now i'm gonna play with this i'm destructive you can pick it up after me i'm just gonna go have a good time let's go have candy like yeah you know yeah, i know there it's and it my sister funny. my I mean, sisters and i were the same way i was i was the oldest i am the oldest in charge we do this we do this we do this i'm in charge you know <laughs> obviously the smartest of the three that kind of thing <laughs> you know and my my middle sister is very she's very much the peacemaker she's quiet she's kind of introverted she's but she's very smart and she's very bright and she anyway a great teacher and the youngest one ronnie you know ronnie ronnie is yeah. partying Woo-hoo! here we go <laughs> are we gonna wear pants today i don't know i don't care you know that's how she is and my mom ha- has this story <clears throat> that i that i've used before when i've done preaching and other things especially with teenagers but of the three kids right and it's this she my mom apparently doesn't learn lessons because when we were about each of us about three years old she had on the shelf this glass this fabergé egg you know antique it's worth something i don't know and it's sitting on this shelf at a place where a three-year-old can reach it and i go to touch it and my mom says don't touch that and i reach and i touch it anyway she smacks my hand right and i just look at her and i reach out to touch it again smack my hand and i just look at her and i reach out to touch it again like is she serious about this she'd smack my hand she'd look three or four or five times and then finally i go hmm and then just walk away and leave it right (laughs) Jenny, same situation. Three years old, reaches up to grab this egg, and my mom says, Jenny, don't touch that. And Jenny bursts into tears. Mom would never have to use any sort of punishment at all on Jenny. All she'd have to do is feel bad, and she'd cry. And Ronnie, the egg sitting up there, mom said, Ronnie, don't touch that. And she touched it and smacked her hand. Ronnie turns to mom. Ronnie's the baby. Turns to mom and looks at her and goes, don't hit. (laughs) And that's, but we have all three of us from the time we were babies to today are all still have that same attitude. I would be the one who would continue to touch something, even being told not to. And eventually, oh, okay, fine. And Ronnie would yeah. don't hit, you know, anyway. It's funny. I mean, like all, all Liliana, who's seven months now, all she right. does is smile. Like this kid does not, she have has a central, of days. She doesn't I have I told a central like, nervous system. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> She's like Willard Scott. She's like like Willard Scott. She just doesn't stop smiling. No, she really doesn't. And, um, yeah, there were a couple weeks ago where she was waking up during the night and then it ended. We did a couple, we did some sleep training and told her she was not getting up anymore and she didn't. Um, but it's funny because she's just happy. Like very rarely is she cranky to the point where she's crying all night or, you know, She's just like Ava can do anything. She'll laugh. She thinks anything Ava does is funny. It's just, but you could, there's a personality. Ava is very sweet and, but like Lily's going to be more gentle. I think you could already see it. Right. I think Ava is going to be like, don't cross her. You're going to get cut. Like when she's older, like she's crazy. You'd be crazy. Don't cross her. Um, I think Lily will probably be like, ah, you know, you can walk all over me. Hopefully not. But I just, I sense that already. Okay. So totally different personalities. I know this is probably, this is an obvious, the obvious answer to this. Because you've seen Godfather, right? Yes. Okay. So there's the oldest son who wants to just go out and kill and shoot everybody and beat him up. Right. And then there's the Godfather. I mean, the, the, uh, I just blanked on his name, but anyway, the, the main character who becomes the Godfather by the end of the series, 
who's just like calm and collected. He's got things under control, and he hires other people. He hires other people to do this, right? That's Lily. Ava's the blah, 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 beat him into submission, and Lily's like, "I got this. It's all right. I got this. I got this. I'm good. I can't." Oh. All right. So okay. So we um, were supposed to. We didn't. I didn't mean for us to go off on this tangent for this long, but it's okay. You it was did. fun. You did. So we you, we had a Franklin Graham thing we were going to talk about. He he wrote an article or gave a speech or something where he said. Christians need to vote for Trump if he's the nominee kind of deal. Is that what it was? Because we need to get into this interview thing. Well, he he said that that everyone needs to, that he believes evangelicals need to vote no matter what, even if they're voting for two heathens. They're picking the, the lesser heathen. The lesser and he did not heathen. say vote for Trump. He actually okay. said, I can't tell you who to vote for, which right. I thought was okay. interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, he proposed the Muslim ban too, so I'm pretty sure we know who he's going to vote for. But <laughs> um, the, the fact of the matter is, um, he was saying, you, know, you need to figure yeah. out which person you need to vote. Evangelicals right. need to vote. Right. The evangelical voter turnout is very low. I've seen numbers as low as 25%. Yeah. Um, you know, even if it's 50%, it's not enough. So get off your couches and so, figure out who you're so going to vote for. So I guess how far do you how far do you take that argument? Because his argument is if you're you just vote for the lesser of two heathens, if that if that's where you are. I mean, what if I don't believe that Hillary or Trump is Mussolini or Hitler, okay? I don't believe that about them at all. However, what if your two candidates are Mussolini and Hitler? Is that where, uh, I think where do you stop? I think you're, where do you stop? Where, but where do you draw the line on you have to vote for the lesser of two heathens? Where do you eventually stop? Where do you eventually stop that gosh, argument? You wonder, Stop right? that argument because... and start saying, I'm not going to vote for either of them. When when does that argument stop? start? When I mean, for me, that argument starts... That argument stops or starts with the line is before Trump and Hillary for me, right? Because I won't vote for either of them. For some, it's after Trump and Hillary, but before Mussolini and Hitler. And that which is a, by the way, a wide spance between those two. But I guess if you're at the end of the day, if one of them is going to be president, you're, do you still choose an evil person who's less evil? Right. Whichever one is yeah. slightly less evil, one I, of them is going to be the leader, whether you vote or not. Right. And so I don't one know. One of them is going to be, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I, and, you know, I understand not wanting to attach your name to something. And I do get that. But I, I don't think this is quite the same as an endorsement because whether you vote or not, one of them will lead the country. Right. So, you know, that's the challenging part. Right. You know, it's, it's sort of like throwing your hands up and saying, well, I'm going to pick one because I, if I don't, it's it's better to have the lesser of two evils always, and I agree. I don't. No one wants to vote for the lesser of two evils, but you don't have a choice. Well, <laughs> this is have, the reality. You, you have, have you, you have, have, a, you have a choice to not vote. I mean, you do have a choice. You do. No, no. You you do have a choice not to vote, but you have no choice. Somebody's going to be president. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Let's um. An interview that you recorded, and now it's yes. I, and I was so bummed. I didn't, I wanted so badly to be on this interview because I. I find the subject fascinating, but or the, the, I, the subject of the interview, the person fascinating. I love um, talking to mega church pastors because I think, you know, and we had this debate offline about something that Andy Stanley had said that got him in trouble about small churches and big churches. And, you know, I love talking to mega church pastors though, because I think they deal with a lot of really interesting elements of having a large church, having to manage that, having to manage the public persona that comes with a large church. Right. They become celebrities. The media cares about what they're doing, what they're saying. Um, Stephen Furtick, who's the pastor at Elevation Church in North Carolina, they have 20,000 members at their various locations every week. Huge mega church. Uh, young guy, real young guy, right. uh, married. I think he has some kids. Um, 
he's had some controversies over the years, but they it's always been weird stuff. Like the there was this they do like um I, I don't want to frame it improperly, but they do baptisms that are off the cuff, basically. Like they're not always planned. They would do these baptisms. And okay. I don't know the whole story behind it, but there was some controversy from what I recall. <laughs> the other controversy was that he has a one point four, one point seven million dollar home and right. there was a big thing. We did a story right. on this back yeah, in twenty thirteen. Right. And people freaked out. Our readers hated that he had this this home. They felt that it was wrong for a pastor to live in a big home. Right. And I, I anyway, but this they wouldn't have a, a lot of interviews. If, if he'd been given the home, it was okay for him to live in. It's the fact that he spent his own money on it that was the problem. Right. And you know, <laughs> so now he doesn't do a lot of interviews. I yeah. think this could be incorrect, but in November he did some local interviews, and I think that was like the first time he had done an interview in like years. <laughs> wow. Like. So he doesn't do them. He has a book out called Unqualified, and it, it's really an interesting book. I, I won't go into too many details about it, but it's sort of how we can all look at ourselves and see the parts of ourselves that aren't good and realize that we can still be used for a purpose, even though right. we have these flaws. Right. Um, and he agreed to do some interviews, and they they actually – the publicist approached us and said, hey, would you guys want to do this? And I, and I said, absolutely. I've been wanting to talk to him for a long time. So oh. – um, we did about twenty minutes, and apparently, about they're, a apparently, they're, of apparently, they're fans of the podcast. Yes, in fact, one of the people on staff at the church was like, "We listen to the podcast." That you is know, awesome. The podcast is great. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, who knows if they started listening after the interview request? But look, who knows? Publicists are smart. They yeah. they go for people. They they you know a little peek behind the curtain. They listen. They look. They want to find where the proper places right. to to right. have they, their they people go find are. The right fit. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, we also talked a little bit about controversy. I brought up those controversies yeah. and I said, hey, I'm not going to ask you about this, but let's talk about the how do you manage being a celebrity pastor? And so, which I think is fascinating. Right. Interesting. So, should we roll it? Uh, okay. Roll it. It's Billy Hollowell here with the Church Boys, and I have Pastor Stephen Furtick on the line. He is the author of Unqualified and the Pastor of Elevation Church. How are you doing today? I'm great, Billy. Thanks. So thanks for coming on. Um, I, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while because I think, you know, I'm fascinated by pastors who have huge congregations who deal with sort of all, all that comes along with that. I mean, I go to a very, very small church. I think I have, I want to say, probably 60 people, which is sort of uncommon because it's right outside of New York City. So, you know, it's, it's a little of a weird dynamic. But I, I love talking to pastors like you who are out there and, and who are doing such amazing work. And now this new book, Unqualified, let's just dive in there first. Tell me, you know, why did you write this book? Why did you choose this subject? Um, it's funny. It's funny how the title even came about because I was, I was watching a sermon on YouTube. And when that sermon finished playing, um, another recommended for you thing came up and I clicked on it. And it was a theologian being interviewed. Um, and I knew the theologian. I didn't know him. I've never met him. But I knew who he was. Legendary guy. But he, he was being interviewed in a lightning round. Uh, and they were asking him, what do you think about this person or that thing going on in the church? And all of a sudden, I, I heard my name. The guy asked him my name, Stephen Furtick. What do you think about Stephen Furtick? And the guy being interviewed, the theologian, he, he drops his head and sized this like this like he was exhaling toxic fumes like even mentioned the mention of my name was was uh too much for him to bear and the next (laughs) word that came out of his mouth was unqualified and 
it hit me in that moment that uh, he wasn't wrong, you know, like that I, I have felt that way, not only in my entire ministry, but in most things that I've tried to do in life. And certainly as a Christian, you know, I, I didn't take, I guess, uh, Billy, the thing that got me in that moment was I wasn't angry. I didn't feel defensive. Um, I, I, I started kind of laughing and I thought like, you should own that, you know, unqualified. <laughs> and in fact, the more I thought about it, I was like, who doesn't, who doesn't feel that way? Totally. I, I mean, in any area of their life. And so I wanted to write a book about it. Yeah, no, that's so, it's so true. And I think especially for Christians in today's world, it's like everybody feels unqualified. And I think no matter how, I mean, gosh, I've written 8,000 articles in the last five years. And I, and I still, am like, you know, you have those moments where you're like, gosh, am I qualified for this? Do Am I doing this right? Am I, you know, the best person to be doing this particular story or whatever? I think, you know, we face that in, in almost every facet of, of life. Uh, but let me ask you this, because I, I think this is key. Um, how do you think God has shown us, you know, through the Bible, and also shows us every day, how people who have failed are still used for good? You know, talk to me about that a little bit. I think you'd be hard-pressed to keep a page of your Bible where that's not evident. <laughs> and that's one thing that makes me sad for people who are maybe outside the faith, and they're judging what it means to be a part of this community, the church, you know, just to be a Christian uh, by what we're presenting to them as our ideals of perfection. The, the more I got into writing the book and the more I got into studying it, once you pick up that lens and look at the Bible through that lens and you start to realize that, that God gave the commandment, thou shalt not kill to a murderer named Moses, you know, it was a fugitive at the time God called him. Uh, we, we, we can airbrush Bible characters all we want, but Jacob was a liar and a deceiver, and he's the one that God brought the nation of Israel through. You know, he, he, he used this guy who, who had basically schemed his way to where he was in life. And I, I, I could go on and on. Even Paul in the New Testament talks about when I am weak, then I am strong. Look at, look at Peter and the instability that was in his life even after Jesus called him the rock. You know, Jesus built the church on these guys that abandoned him at the cross. So the more you look at it that way, you realize that maybe we've made the characters in the Bible flat characters. When you actually look at them, you see that God often used them not just because of, you know, the, the strengths that they had, and not just in spite of their weaknesses, but actually he, he sometimes worked through the most broken people. And I don't want this to just sound like a, you know, kind of a generic message. Hey, you feel unqualified. God can use you anyway. My goal in the book was to talk about how your relationship with your weaknesses and your relationship with your deficiencies, you know, the, the way that you see those things can actually lead you to a greater place of strength. So I'm, I'm trying to help people have a little bit of hope that we're all walking around secretly asking the question, do I have what it takes? And the thing about that question is you may answer in the affirmative in one area of your life, but there's going to be somewhere where you silently feel like a fraud. And just even by talking about it and realizing that that's a good starting place for God because now you're dependent on him and the feeling of being unqualified doesn't mean that you're not called. So I'm trying to get people to embrace and fulfill their calling even in spite of their conflicts and not wait on some imaginary day in the future where you have this issue resolved and you no longer struggle with that or you have a skill set that you're waiting to develop that you think everybody else has or some knowledge that you think you're missing but to get started putting putting together the big picture even if they're missing pieces. Yeah, no that that makes sense and I think 
you know, it can hold us back a lot when we feel that way, right? When we feel like we're not qualified or when we're questioning ourselves so much, instead of, you know, turning to God and trying to fix those areas in our lives, letting them hold us back in some way um, and not realizing, you know, who we should be, not only who we are, but who we should be and where those areas of improvement are. So, I mean, I think that's huge. And I don't know, this is kind of a weird question, but I'm going to throw it out there because it seems like every once in a while, you know, a pastor finds him or herself, and not just a pastor, but a Christian celebrity, anybody out there who has professed to be a believer, they find themselves in a bad situation, some, some sort of information comes out, and I think in those moments, it's really easy for everybody to sort of turn, and not that there shouldn't be some level of, you know, concern or whatever over whatever these elements are, but, um, you know, everyone sort of piles on them. How do you think Christians should react when, you know, those unqualified elements maybe of somebody else's life come out and there's sort of a, an outpouring of anger or frustration over various perceived scandals or, or things like that, you know, how should believers react to that? And, you know, instead of just that gut reaction, maybe. That's a, that's a great question. Um, to me, it might be summarized best in my personal approach to it. I would hopefully give that person the grace that I hope I never need. You know, yeah, yeah. to understand that all of us are capable of, you know, the worst thing that can be mentioned in our lives. And knowing that about yourself, I, I don't think it's hard to stay stay humble. When you really know who you are and what you're capable of and you don't live in delusion, my first instinct is usually reflective of my own self-awareness. If my first instinct is how could they be so stupid, you know, we... We, we do need a standard and we do need accountability. That's not my point. There will be consequences, especially in ministry, when you make certain decisions. Just like, you know, a, a doctor has a certain certification process and can do things to lose his or her credentials. A pastor can certainly fall into that same situation. I'm not talking about whether or not they're able to be employed in ministry, but the way that we look at them as a human being, look, I'm sure that there were times in David's life that if you and I had been on the kingship committee, we might have impeached him. But but we talk about David now. This is the thing, Billy, that I can't get over. When we talk about David now, he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's right. a man after God's own heart. We got him back when he was 17 fighting Goliath. How about that rooftop <laughs> thing that happened with Bathsheba? So my point of the book isn't that your decisions don't matter and that you should basically presume upon the grace of God to cover up for your negligence in life. That's not the message. There, there, there is a standard in anything, especially in ministry. But what I'm saying is far too often, I think we have a, a showroom view of other people and a warehouse view of ourselves. And what I mean by that is we know what's going on behind the scenes in our own life. You know how you are with your kids. You know that although others think you're a good parent, you feel like you really weren't available to them emotionally this week. You know that there are four things that you've left undone and you might be impressing somebody in this area, but you're totally failing in the other. And knowing all that about yourself, it's difficult for you to see your own potential. So I think what, what we do in the process is come to a place of imagining that God is going to love or use some future version of us. In the book, I talk about um, three different me's. And uh, I talk about the real me with my flaws, so flawed verdict, and then there's future verdict, and that's the guy I'm going to be. I'm going to be that guy when I get it together, when I get a little bit of space, when I master this, uh, when I get up earlier, when I exercise more, whatever. You know, we all have our different ideals. And then there's the guy that I use in the, in the meantime 
to try to present to people called Fake Furtick. And I send that guy out as my <laughs> ambassador because I can't imagine that they would really love the flawed, frustrated version of me. The book says that, no, God can only bless flawed Furtick. God can only bless the person that I am, not the person I pretend to be. So whether it's judging someone else's failure uh, or looking at somebody else from a distance and thinking how much better they are than us, I think comparison is a silent killer. And the moment we begin to measure ourselves against ourselves, Paul says we're not wise because we're making an assessment based on incomplete information. So those are a few thoughts that go through my head when you ask that question. That's how I process it personally. No, I think that's I think that's great. And the only reason I bring it up is because I think that's a, another sort of piece of this of, oh, yeah, it becomes a lot easier to critique other people who are in the public spotlight, right? Because it just it's like, oh, well, I don't even have to focus on my stuff then, too. I can, I can look at how bad that person is. Meanwhile, the only difference is they have a megaphone that – the other people don't, right? So you're not seeing all those awful things that people are going through and facing and, and doing. So no, I think I think that's a great answer. And uh, you know, one of my one of my questions for you too is I the reason I brought up in the beginning my, my fascination with large churches and sort of what comes along with that is, you know, what I guess what's the biggest reward of having and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys have like twenty thousand weekly attendees at your various locations, right? Yes, yes, that's correct. So what is what is the biggest, you know, reward of having a church that size in your view? You definitely get a sense that the scope of impact is increased. When we do something together, like an outreach week that we do every year in our city, man, we can cover the city in a pretty tremendous way with that number of people. Uh, we can show a large amount of love. So it definitely scales the potential impact. That's one thing. The, the second thing that it does for me is it increases, and I, I'm going to try to say this. I've never been asked that exact question before, uh, but it's not hard for me to answer because it's never experienced in those moments of 20,000. To me, you would have to go in my, uh, in my email inbox and see the stories that come in individually. And so for me, 20,000 people is reduced really quickly when I get an email from somebody who was suicidal and heard a message I preached out of Acts 27, and that combined with the love that they felt from the people, they decided, you know what, I told God I was going to give them one more chance and come to church is six months later, and my life is coming together. I could tell you more and more about that. You know, I preached a message uh, out of Joshua about the walls of Jericho, you know, one of the most famous Bible stories of all time where they marched seven times. But the message was, don't stop on six. And the idea behind the message was, hey, you might be on your, your sixth lap and not even know that the next lap around the walls are going to fall because the men didn't know that the walls are going to fall on the seventh time. Only Joshua knew that. They were just marching. And our life feels like we're marching. Man, I was in a, I was in a group this past week talking to some people about their experience in our church. And one of the couples uh, spoke up and the woman said, uh, she was pretty emotional, but she got through it. She said, I came to church and you were preaching, don't stop on six. And I realized I was in my sixth year of marriage and I was about to leave my husband. And now she's telling me on the other side, you know, what God has done. That's been several years ago and how God has restored it. So when you have 20,000 people showing up on a weekend, you realize that there is the potential for 20,000 of those. Wow. And not all the stories are that dramatic. Sometimes it's just somebody saying, you know, this helps me with my focus. But there are those days, even if, even if I have 20,000 people showing up on the weekend, where I feel the discouragement of wondering, am I making a difference? So what 20,000 people 
doesn't do for you, and I don't think any amount of achievement or success in any area of life can, can do it, it never takes away the doubts. Um, it never takes away the fears because, you know, 20,000 people, uh, more people, more problems, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of loosely quoting um, a, a 1996 R&B song, but yeah, more people, more problems. Uh, one of my seminary professors taught me more, me no mess, no ministry. And, uh, and so I think, you know, it also creates a deeper dependence. It, it's harder to rely on God uh, to lead 20,000 people than it was for me to lead 200 because I don't know what I'm doing. I've never done this before. And so that creates a need to go to God. But that's actually pretty cool, too, because I feel like I'm over my head and that that mandates that I stay in a place of faith. So it doesn't allow me to grow complacent because I need God for the next direction. Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, the people business is a messy business, no matter where it is. And I think when it comes to when it comes to faith, it's an especially messy and not always in a bad way, you know, business, though, where you just you you're dealing with so much. And I think the other element that I was curious, obviously, I asked you the benefit, what are some of the of the and you mentioned some of the challenges, but I guess the question I want to ask you is the outside challenges, because in addition to the 20,000, you then have media and a bigger scope. People are looking at you. When you've got a church with 20,000 people, anybody, I mean, I would say once your church hits 1,000 people, the media are looking at you, right? They want to they want to know what's going on. They have questions. And there have been things over the years, questions about very, you know personal things, your house, other things like that. And I'm not going to ask about all that. But what I am going to ask about is, you know, how do you deal with that dynamic? And what are the challenges there with sort of the outside world looking in? Well, first of all, I put it in perspective, and I realized that when I asked God to give us influence as a church, you can't ask for the influence and then not be willing to deal with the enemies. <laughs> you right, can't right. go into a new land and not expect to face new opposition. And that's not always other people that are the enemies. It could be challenges that you face to deal with the systems. In regards to what you asked specifically, I want to hit that because I'm passionate about telling people this. My external challenges, whether it's a media report, and you mentioned there have been media reports about our church, um, there have been media reports about uh, my personal life, uh, a home that my wife and I built, and all of those things uh, on the surface can feel like an attack. But here's what I realized. The external, uh, what we might call attack, or the external uh, issue only has as much power as my internal insecurities allow it to have. That was the key for me, because as long as I thought that people talking bad about me on Twitter were the enemy, or people saying things about me on Facebook, or even somebody writing a story that I felt like was largely untrue or shaded in ways that were misleading, as long as I saw that as the enemy, the power to deal with it was in getting them to stop. And one day I was, I was actually, I was asking, I was praying and asking God to you know, make it stop. I felt like a, a little nine-year-old, you know, make them stop talking bad about me, you know, <laughs> and that was kind of my tone. And it was as if God said to me, just the impression that I got, if I make that stop, I have to make all the other stuff stop too. All the stuff that you prayed for, all the lives you get to touch, you can't have that without this. And it gave me a new perspective on it. And I realized that, hey, you know what, in the scheme of things, to have the ability to touch lives and you know, mend something that's broken in someone. This is nothing to go through. And I pictured 
the Apostle Paul laughing at me <laughs> for, for <laughs> complaining about being written, uh, a story, a negative story being written about me in the Charlotte Observer, and people said mean things about me in the comments. I pictured Paul, you know, shipwrecked and left for dead and the plots of the Jews and disciples being crucified upside down. And I pictured me telling them my, my story one day <laughs> and, and them in heaven and, and them and them looking at me like, really, you call that a trial? You know, you call that, that's not a knife. This is a knife. That's not a trial. This is a trial. So I put it in perspective. And I also had to realize that we, we live in an age where everything appears much larger than life, both the praise and the criticisms. And it's not a healthy place for me to live to be driven too much by either one. And so if I go on and see 10 people on social media tell me that I'm the greatest and 10 people tell me that I'm the Antichrist, I can't live in that schizophrenic state of rising and falling. I have to be responsible for my own integrity and trust my reputation to God. And you know, when you do it that way, I found out that when I focused on leading our church, controlling what I could, making the decisions that, that I felt like were right, I felt like when my attention wasn't on what people were saying about it, but I was really focused on what God had given me to be responsible for. Everything else took care of itself. It was when I became distracted. Um, I, I, I told our church one time, the devil can't destroy you through that kind of stuff. But if he can distract you, you'll destroy yourself. And I think that's the way criticism works as we start to lead with an edge. Uh, we start to spend too much time trying to affect that stuff rather than just being faithful to our calling and knowing that you know, the guy that we followed got killed for what he taught. That's what it means to be a Christian. So I can't then turn around and complain that if I'm representing him, that there are going to be a few people that don't like me. Really, I have nothing to complain about. And never read the comment section. That is a lesson. You oh, never read it. <laughs> yes. People I, call I, for I, me to be fired all the time. I mean, like, you just, you never read it because it's awful. Um, you, know, you know what happens when you do is it's always those three comments. There could be 300 saying something positive and uplifting and you tell yourself it doesn't matter but it gets in your head and oh, so totally. you have to really you're right you have to put a, a keep out zone over certain parts of the internet or, or you're going to lose your mind you uh, i'll tell you one more thing billy I, I i was telling a friend um he asked me um after we had gone through a period of, of media scrutin scrutiny i um i was talking to him about what i learned and one of the things i said is you know when you have a lot of critics and you have kind of a lot of opposition and you find out that you're going to be okay through it, and what they think about you doesn't define you, and what they say about you isn't going to stop you. It's like your whole life, you thought that you had mountain lions in your backyard, and they were going to attack you. You see these critics and bloggers as these ferocious mountain lions. And then one day you turn the lights on to find out they were really just squirrels, like <laughs> a bunch of squirrels, and you could, you, you could handle this thing with a BB gun. So I, I'm thankful for that perspective. You know, You come out of it on the other side realizing it's not a big deal. Well, listen, this has been great, and I know you've got a, a lot of other stuff going on, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go, but I appreciate your time, and I hope you'll come back on again. Billy, I would love to. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. The Church Boys. The Church Boys. Man, I hate these guys. I'm just sitting here drinking my Diet Coke, and I just love the way it tastes. It's so delicious. I love it, and I just would love for all of you to buy some Diet Coke so that you could drink with me while we listen while you listen to this wonderful show that I'm doing. My name is Chris Field. <laughs> it really, 
I'm not sure what's more disturbing, the fact that you get so close to your microphone and set off all my distortion here on the on the board, or the fact that you think that's what I sound like. Yeah, he wants to be loose then. So you were supposed to bring us back like a professional, and um, it failed at that, but I was wondering if maybe you could get us into the story that we were you wanted to talk about to close us out here. Yeah, so there's this And it's not funny, which is sad. Go ahead. What? What did no, you the, the story funny? the story's not funny. No, I usually like to end up on I really upload. love it. It's this photographer out in Utah and she put together a video uh, where she basically brought in a bunch of different Christians from different denominations. I don't know which ones, but and and asked them a series of questions, but the stipulation was you cannot respond verbally or vocally. You have to right. only respond uh, through your facial expressions, you know, or through nonverbal communication. Right. And it started with, do you believe in Jesus? Who is Christ to you? Um, and then it went into some really heavy stuff. Like think of the most, the, the most difficult moment in your life. Right. Think of the best moment in your life. Um, and then was Jesus there for you? And so I won't spoil all the questions uh, because I'd encourage people to go yeah, and, really and watch this video. It's really good. Uh, but it's eight minutes of really no, there's a little bit of talking in the beginning, but no sound except yeah. for music, obviously. But, yeah. and you just see the reactions on people's faces and it paints an entire story that I think is really fascinating yeah. about how people feel about their faith. Yeah. I thought it was really, really, really well done. And, and, and I loved the topic. I loved how they presented it. I loved all of that. I thought it was, but what, um, did you think that the people in the video looked familiar? I thought some of those I were from, some of those were several of the faces. I'm like, I think I know who that person is. They did look familiar. Did to you me. have any? I mean, I don't know if celebrity, uh, uh, like a celebrity feel. A couple of them look like maybe celebrities, or maybe I've seen them on other church videos, or they've done other things. It was really strange. I really love the video. It doesn't take away from the video at all. But I, I watched. It, I thought, I'm sure I've seen these people somewhere before. Well, the last time somebody looked familiar in a video was Ted Cruz's campaign video, and that didn't go too well. So let's hope we know oh, no. who these people no, are. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Why did that person seem familiar to you, Billy? Not to me. Uh -huh, I mean, I'm just uh -huh. saying. Sure, to, whatever you... to people who realized it. Somebody uh -huh, realized right, it. Right, <laughs> Billy's, of course, talking about the porn star, the porn actress who appeared in a Ted Cruz video. I find no, it I'm interesting. Obviously, somebody recognized her for that to blow up. Right. No, no that's not how you said it, because... We talked about how we thought these people were familiar, and then you said something about this person <laughs> seeming go, looking really to... familiar in this Ted Cruz video. Here we go. And the only thing go. she Here would be go. familiar from would be if you'd seen some of her uh, other work. Let's oh, call it. please. You're awful. You're terrible. <laughs> yes, well, you're the one talking about recognizing a porn actress in a, uh, <laughs> in a political ad, but whatever, Billy. So uh, I turned off my camera there for a minute. We were having some connectivity issues. So... Uh, I don't know really where to go with that. Maybe we should just go ahead and stop because you and I have another meeting here in about two and a half minutes. You are a mess. Um, I had something else I was going to ask about, and now I can't remember at all what it was going to be. I don't know, but you're breaking up. Oh, all right. <laughs> it's, oh, it's better now. That was weird. So, <laughs> I had something really important that I wanted to bring. Oh, okay. my Gmail account. I'm almost out of memory. I'm almost out of how, space. How do you run it? I mean, it's Google. How do you run it? Are you just so cheap you won't pay the dollar a month to keep a, keep a Google I account? I have 18,469 unread messages right now. 
So, I mean, a lot of them are garbage, but I, I'm going to have to pay for space, but I'm very cheap. I, I don't want to pay. Keep a Google Drive because it's nice because you can access it from anywhere. I store some photos and I store some stuff for the radio show, for the podcast on there. I store some files and, you know, and there are things that I'll create <laughs> here that I need to be able to access other places. So wait a minute. I'm laughing because I just pulled it up. I'm like, well, how bad is it? And I, <laughs> I'm using 15.01 gigabytes of 15. <laughs> it's a giant exclamation point. Uh, now, let me know if my email went through to you. I guess that's the moral of the story because I sent an email to you with audio. Oh, yes, I have it. So anyway, good, good anyway, this has been fun. Read your Qurans. <laughs> and, <laughs> and watch your porn political videos or whatever it is Billy's going to do after we sign never off Never Trump. <laughs> never Trump. Never Trump. Never Trump. I'm a never Trumpkin. Never Trump, never Trump. <laughs> Always Clinton. Jeez. We are Forever Clinton. We are so screwed. <laughs> the Church Boys.